I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 13, verse 8, and Galatians 5, verse 13. So, like a few weeks ago, we have two passages today for our look at God's Word. I want to read the Galatians passage first, though. Let's look at Galatians 5, starting with verse 13. Would you stand as we read and acknowledge that this is God's holy and inspired authoritative Word? For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled. In one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite, devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now go ahead and go over to our Romans passage, Romans 13, starting with verse 8. Owe to no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet. Any other commandment summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness or sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit working through men like Paul to speak to us words that transcend the time in which they were written, words that are as applicable today as they were 2,000 years ago. So Lord, I pray that we would approach the scriptures with reverence, with awe, with teachable spirits, ready minds, attentive ears. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in both Galatians and Romans, Paul says that our lives are either shaped by indulging the sinful nature or by self-sacrificial love. In Galatians, he warns against gratifying the desires of the flesh, which he says lead to biting and devouring one another. And in Romans, he warns against the works of darkness, which lead to immorality and quarreling and jealousy. And so take careful note of what we read in verse 14 here in Romans. Make no provision for the flesh. What does that tell us? It tells us that even though we are saved by the Lord, even though we have been justified by faith through the the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that our lives still remain a struggle with sin. That was clear already from chapter 12, but also chapter 7 and much of Romans. Paul wouldn't 
Paul would not say, make no provision for the flesh, or in Galatians, don't gratify the desires of the flesh, if that still wasn't a very real battle. So when you gratify something, you feed it, you please it. The New King James Version uses the word indulge, which gives the picture of allowing the flesh to direct you to do what it wants to do and go where it wants to go. And what does that look like in daily life? It looks like relationships out of control, dominated by conflict and lust and self-centeredness and more. But as a son or a daughter of the king, the question for you is this. Will you live in self-imposed bondage to your flesh, doing the works of darkness? Or will you grab hold of the promises of the gospel and turn in a completely different direction? That's a question today. And not only do these two passages capture the, the nature of the struggle for the heart, but they also give hope. The fact is that even though you experience these powerful desires of the flesh, you can say no. You can go into a, a different direction because of the resources that are yours in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. You can put on the armor of light. You can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are made a new creation. You can choose to go where the Spirit leads you rather than where your flesh would lead you. Now, throughout Romans, Paul has proven that our condition prior to the intervention and salvation of God was desperate. We were dead in sin. And here's the thing. When our condition was so desperate, it was not enough for God to just forgive you. Romans 5 told us that if Christ gave everything to die for you on the cross, would he not give even more now that he lives? In other words, it was not enough for God to just forgive you and me. He has to indwell us to work in us every day to will and to do his good pleasure. He has to break down that pride that so fiercely grips our hearts. He has to remind us of his holiness. He has to convict us of sin. He, also of forgiveness, for he who has forgiven much learns to love much. And the reason why I think this is so important to emphasize is that we all tend towards self-righteousness. We already saw that in Romans 12 where Remember how the Gentiles were proud that the gospel was brought to them and made effective while Israel rejected the gospel? Like those of chapter 12, we too were quick to condemn in others what Paul lists in Romans. We condemn drunkenness, sexual immorality, quarreling, jealousy. We even make conclusions that someone who is really struggling must not be a believer. And we're easily convinced into thinking that we don't have the same kinds of struggles. Or at least if we do, well, we still deserve God's blessings. Is that at all a description for you? Why does the Holy Spirit indwell you? If you don't need His help every day, His sufficient, overpowering, empowering grace to reject the same pole of the flesh that everyone else faces, why do you need the Spirit? Was Paul writing to everyone else but you and me? <laughs> In Romans 13 and Galatians 5. 
Listen for a moment to 2 Peter 1, verse 5. Make every effort. Supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And that last sentence may just jump out, shock you a little bit. There are a lot of what Peter calls nearsighted or nearly blind Christians who forget what God has done in their lives. And that makes them ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'll give you some examples, and maybe they might be close to home. Consider the person who's super involved but spiritually immature, and we'll call his name Luke. If you want to know what's going on at the church, ask Luke. Whatever the meeting or ministry, he's there. He's got his Bible in hand. He's served as a volunteer. He's gone on mission trips. He's a hard worker. And yet all of his church activities have little impact on his heart or how he lives his life. This form of blindness may not lead as much to conflict as some of the other examples I'll give you, but it makes Luke ineffective. Remember that God condemned the superficial ritualism of the Israelites in the Old Testament period and Christ condemned the ritualism of the Pharisees of his day. Why? Because religious ritual allows me to retain control of my life, my time, and my agenda. It can make a person blind to the seriousness of his spiritual condition and the constant need for God's grace A person like Luke sees his church work as one healthy aspect of an overall good life. For him, the gospel is too easily reduced to church attendance and volunteer work. Are there any Lukes here besides Luke Hine? (laughs) And this was not about you, Luke. I'm convinced that the reason that many people are not excited by the gospel is that they don't think they need it. At least not enough to distract them from the really important things like school and work and relationships. Many parents have successfully raised self-righteous, ritualistic Pharisees who, when they look at themselves, don't see a sinner in desperate need. And so they're neither grateful that they have a Savior, nor are they fully aware of what that redemption accomplished. And sadly, the same is true often of the parents. What about another example? Call her Sally. I know we don't have a Sally here. As soon as I started using the name Luke, I knew we had a Luke here. And so Sally is a walking list of do's and don'ts. She has a set of rules for everything. And those rules are typically gathered from all of the highlighted portions of the books that she's been reading on parenting and courtship and marriage and everything. And her life has become a model of legalism, and her children live under that weight. And because Sally is so concerned with external performance and less with the internal heart, there's little joy in her home. 
mostly because the grace of God is rarely celebrated there. And the blindness, you know, we go back to that first Peter passage. The blindness of legalism completely misses the fact that no one can satisfy God's righteous requirements. While Sally rigidly keeps her rules, her nearsightedness keeps her focus on herself and pride. Impatience, a judgmental spirit. And of course, that spirit doesn't stay confined to the home. It touches all of her relationships. Are there any Sallys here? Yet another example is Reuben. It's hard to come up with names that we didn't have in the church. Now, Reuben is the the go-to guy for theology and hard questions. His library includes rare books, especially on the Reformers and the Puritans. And he frequently uses phrases like biblical worldview and theologically sound. And he has a lot of words in terms of in with ology. He loves the Bible, which is a very good thing, but there are things in Reuben's life that just don't seem to fit. Despite his dedicated study of Christianity, he is not known for being like Christ. He has a reputation for being impatient and critical and proud and sarcastically intolerant of those who lack his perfect understanding of the faith. He endlessly critiques sermons, perhaps even sits there rewriting them in his head as he listens. And in Reuben's Christianity, communion, dependency, worship of Christ, they have been replaced by a drive to master the content of systematic theology. And it's not just the more readable kinds. It's Louis Burkhoff, you know, he's the, the thick one in his hand. He may be an expert on the dual nature of Christ as expressed at the Council of Chalcedon, but his children run wild and his wife feels unloved. The word doesn't master him. And he Rubens. One more example. Her name's Christine. She is so thankful for the relationships she found at the local church. They're unlike any friendship she had previously experienced. She loves the group studies, midweeks. She particularly likes the fellowship meals, the family camps, the special events, local mission stuff, particularly the nursing home. She feels alive and connected. But the trouble started when one of her closest friends became interested in the guy she was interested in. She began to feel lost and out of place, surrounded by people with whom she couldn't relate to. Or people she was coming to resent because she felt like she was being treated differently and no longer in the in-group. Christine doesn't realize it, but fellowship, acceptance, respect, and position in the body of Christ, have replaced dependence on and communion with Christ and his people. And the church has somehow become her social club rather than a family. And when the club started to change and her status started to falter, she lost her motivation to keep attending. Now these are just four examples of many that are so prevalent among Christians. It's because, as Peter says, we forget about our new identity and what we were saved from. 
Or as Paul says, we continue to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And at the heart of these examples is an appeal to something that the flesh wants. Acceptance, affirmation, self-exaltation. Appeals to our interests, our own perceived needs, our own glory, our own self-righteousness. The flesh lusts after being the center of the universe. And yet the gospel makes it clear that the only way to really live is to first die and that those who strive to live, especially for themselves, end up dying as a result. So if you are still nearsighted and blind, if you felt like, yeah, that was a little bit of me in one or more of those examples, or I could come up with others, and and I realize I struggle with these things, struggle with putting on Jesus Christ, then these morning passages in Galatians and Romans call you to something better. As Paul says in Galatians 5, you've been called to freedom from that. Haven't you gone weary of some of those things? You talk to Sally, she's weary of trying to live up to all the rules. You talk to a Reuben, he doesn't understand what's going on. He's weary. Christine, she's weary. Luke is weary. All of them weary from the nearsighted and blind attitudes that strive towards self-fulfillment and instead lead to this ever-shrinking self-centeredness, and as a result, what we read in Galatians 5, interpersonal conflict. It does not move towards unity. It moves towards division. The Apostle James writes, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that were war in your members? And he's asking an important question there. Where do all of these conflicts come from? You might have given as an answer, I think it's because we have such a diverse group of families in the church. We found we have so many different backgrounds, experiences. Conflict is bound to occur in a situation like that. The more people you add, more personalities, that always happens in a big family. Or you might have said, I think conflict occurs because, well, there are legitimate areas for disagreement especially when it comes to important areas of doctrine and life. We just, we just have to learn to get along and, and fight through these things. But notice that those types of answers, they just describe an environment. They, they describe environments that can be conducive to conflict, right? But they, neither one of them answer why conflict occurs in the first place. If you think again about James's answer, he says conflict arises because people are serving their own perceived needs, their wrong motives, their personal pleasures rather than God's glory. And that's what we've been talking about with regard to Paul's words in Galatians and Romans and Peter's and 2 Peter. And now here's James. They're all saying the same thing. In another passage in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And he goes on to say, I try to please everyone in everything I do. How? 
not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Galatians 5 said something similar. There Paul had written, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Similarly in Romans, he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so between these various passages, we have the solution. If you are weary from the kind of nearsighted and blindness that comes from being so dominated by the desires of the flesh, the solution is put on Jesus Christ. And stop making provision for the desires of the flesh. Start living for the glory of God. And do you see what Paul says there at the end? The, not my own advantage, but that of many. Start living for the profit of others. It's such an easy on the one hand, but it's a profound shift in thinking. Not many of us And certainly not many of us consistently get up in the mornings with the thought of others on our mind. And yet we're being warned that our conflicts and our reaction to conflict are usually not summarized by how can I glorify God in this situation and what can I do for the profit and advantage of my brother or sister, but rather are usually summarized by how do I today get what I want out of these situations? Children, if your brother or sister takes something from you, do you normally ask yourself, I need to stop for a second, pause, take a deep breath, and ask how I can glorify God in this moment. What does does my brother or sister really need in in this? Why why did he take this or or say this to me? What does does he need for his edification? I, I would venture most of you don't say that, right? Do you simply want to let them know how much you've been offended or do you want to yell and grab back what was yours? It doesn't change when we become adults. In fact, our motivation usually remains the same. We usually become more subtle and manipulative. Instead of yelling and grabbing and that enraged face I've seen even on some of my grandchildren when they have been uh, crossed, right? It's, Give me back my toy. We look for opportunities to criticize. We gossip. We isolate. We avoid those who offend us. Don't we do all of those things? And it's all with the result of an insatiable flesh. I keep saying, feed me. Indulge me, and you can never fill the pit that is your flesh. And the result is that the body of Christ is divided. And believe me, the most petty conflicts can sometimes escalate into church dividing wars. Idols always demand sacrifices. And that is particularly true of the idol of self. And when others criticize us, our idol demands that they suffer. 
And only when they give in to our desire and give what we want will we stop inflicting pain upon them. And there's a very simple conclusion that can be drawn from what Paul is saying here. Salvation by the grace of God results in freedom from that kind of endless sacrificing. It frees us from a life marked by manipulation and biting and devouring one another and instead leads to one of mutual service and love. And here's perhaps the scarier conclusion that you may have already drawn, particularly from that Second Peter passage. If you are a saved child of God, you should be seeing good fruit in your relationships, not rotten fruit. Christian freedom results directly in changed marriages and changed families and changed relationships with neighbors and friends and employers. And it's a sobering thing, you know, when Peter said in there, those are the virtues that should be present in the Christian life. And if they are not there, the, the problem is most likely a nearsighted blindness that is set in because you have forgotten the grace of God. So a good question for you today is, have your relationships improved? Have they changed for the better? And of course, change doesn't happen overnight, friends. Perhaps you may think, wouldn't it have been easier if God had just sanctified us first? If I could marry a sanctified husband or wife or God threw in self-controlled children, that would be wonderful, Right? Why do we think like that? Because we are often slaves of the flesh and we want our lives to be ones of comfort. God, though, has put you into messy relationships. Relationships called marriage or parenthood or childhood or employment or church membership, messy as they are, One flawed person relating to another flawed person in a flawed world. And God knows that you married a sinner. You may have been surprised, but he knew that. He knows that your children lack self-control and that your employer can be harsh. He knows that there are Matthew-like tax collectors filling the church with Simon the Zealots. He knew that you would face messiness and discouragement and disappointment. But the good news is, did you hear it? Galatians and Romans, you are free. You are free from that bondage to the flesh. You are freed from that endless sacrificing to the idol of self. You are freed to love God and by extension to love others and to actually experience joy. And here's more good news. Those very relationships are God's principal tool of sanctifying you in that freedom. And note in verse 15 of Galatians 5 that Paul doesn't say that biting and devouring leads to a destruction of the relationship. That's how we usually read that verse. We, we, we think of it as relationship breakdown, which is true. It's part of it. But did you, see, did you read and remember the other part where it says where you consume one another? 
you both lose. Killed by the poison of rotten fruit. So if one path leads to consuming one another, it leads to losing, which sounds a lot like self-destruction, to where does the other path, the one of serving others, under the banner of love of God and our neighbor lead? It leads to joy. Which one do you want? And here's the wonderful part. In serving others, not only are you putting on Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 13, which means that people are seeing the gospel lived out in you, but you are changed in the process. Second Peter described various virtues that actually start developing in your life as you're living the way that Paul is admonishing and exhorting us to. You start developing things like self-control and brotherly affection. Romans 13 says that you fulfill the law, which means that you please God. Those are all things that we want. What is the legacy that your behavior towards your spouse, your children, and your friends, your coworkers has produced? What is the harvest? Are you closer to others than you've ever been before? Is there a sweeter, more tender love for others than 10 years ago? Is there more unity and peace? Are they marked by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and more? Is that what your freedom in Christ has produced? Hmm. That's a question we really want to settle on. We get, we get focused on the moment of salvation. We get focused on the fact that we are, and call ourselves a believer in God. We don't take the time to ask those types of hard questions. Is the Holy Spirit indwelling me and the freedom in Christ producing these types of changes and improvements in my life? Or are you still doing the works of darkness? Now, friends... I want to not leave you there. I don't want to leave you there where you say, all right, well, God's set me free, it says. He set me free from myself. He set me free to love others as I should. But it really is too hard. I've, I've done either, I've, you know, the two common answers are, I've done too many things to recover from. Or it's just, I don't have the desire and the motivation. That seems impossible. Maybe you even say, I just don't want to. Sometimes that's an honest answer. I just don't want to. They don't reciprocate. They treat me poorly. I've tried it. I've tried those things. I've tried to love them. But they don't deserve it or other things. Well, we were told for eight chapters in Romans about the love of God for us and how we did not deserve it. Remember? We were told how that should motivate in return a love for God. And Romans 13 is not written in a vacuum. It is written on that foundation 
Paul isn't just saying, love your neighbor in empty space. He's saying, love your neighbor because God first loved you. Jesus once said that the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that the second commandment is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's that first commandment that makes the second commandment possible. Jonathan Edwards once said that it is the nature of God's love that disposes men to give to the poor, to all acts of mercy towards their neighbors, to hear one another's bur- bear one another's burdens, to weep with those that weep. Not only that, but loving God actually provides us the strength and love we need to properly care for our neighbor. We, it simply is true. We, we can't do it in ourselves. It is impossible, but... We also know from God's word that his love is sufficient. His strength is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. So let me put this one more way. When your heart, when your mind, soul, and strength are focused on loving God, you have a desire not only to glorify him, but to be holy as God is holy. And your love is not full if you simply stand at a distance from God and his people. You don't just want to see the grace of God. You want to see it saving people through you. That's what we read also in that 1 Corinthians 10 passage. Why? Because if you truly love and admire God, you want to be like him. And you quickly learn that there are a few things as joyful and as satisfying as seeing others become like Christ. Of investing in others. Of serving others. Of blessing others. It's what is meant when we say that our love for God overflows us and spills out in a love for our neighbor. It is also what Paul means when he writes about putting on Jesus Christ as an armor of light. You are surrounded, friends, by needs every day. There are families in this congregation that need your help. Some need prayer for their marriage and family. Well, consider putting on Jesus Christ and praying for them. James 5.16 says that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Others need financial help due to the out-of-control inflation and employment challenges right now. You may not be able to meet every financial burden of others, but some of you have been blessed with extra in order that you might help that need, particularly in difficult times. Others are worried over loved ones who are sick or even themselves struggling with loss or medical issues. You may not be able to fully empathize with every hurt or sorrow or illness or pain, but you can certainly be present. You can offer mercy. In short, you can offer love. And remember, as John reminds us, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what I was saying a moment ago. We are not being told this in Romans 13 in a vacuum. God laid down his life. Christ laid down his life for us. Whoever has this world's good, sees his brother in need, shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not just love in word. Let's stop stop calling ourselves Christians and saying that we are love and actually singing songs like they will know we are Christians by our love. That's true. But as 1 John says, let us love in deed and in truth. 
How many times have we quoted the passage from John 15, 13, no greater love has a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends, and then we respond, I would do this for so-and-so, I would give that great sacrifice, but are we willing to live for others too? Did you catch the change there? It's easy for us to hypothesize and create maybe that situation, that one situation. I think I could do that. I pray I never have to be challenged in that way to do that. Well, you're being actually given a bigger challenge. You're being asked to live for others and die to yourself. Words are cheap, and great sacrifices are rarely required of that ultimate kind. But what the Lord commands is not these heroic, one-time, never-again-repeated gestures, but rather the daily sharing of what you have with those who have not. Now, Paul says in Romans 13, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. What is that day? It is the day of the children of God. And I love Paul's word picture of being clothed in armor of light as contrasted with the works of darkness. And really what he's saying is, let us, let us commit to not being like the examples that I shared other, uh, earlier of, of people who because of nearsightedness and blindness to what God has done continue to live self-absorbed gratifying the desired lives of our flesh and the idols of ourselves and seeing weak, impoverished, divided relationships in an immature, conflict-riddled church all steeped in darkness. Instead, let us live for others because Christ himself gave himself and lives for us and we put him on in that sense. We, we shine forth in the darkness as in on armor of light. And that kind of light of true Christianity that is lived out in word, not just a word alone, but in deed and in truth is dazzling. And it is the light that will strengthen this church, repair relationships and families and marriages and save this community. It's the only thing. I love the fact that Paul's been leading up to this point. Those first chapters of Romans were theologically foundational for us. And then they started getting practical and more practical and more practical in the application of those truths. And then you come to this chapter and you go, God's equipped us for it. Let's be that kind of people. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this whole book of Romans that has been a consistent apology, defense of not only a right understanding of salvation, but a right understanding of sanctification. It's been leading to this call to stop living for ourselves, to to remember the freedom to which you called us out from darkness into light. And Lord God, you have not just called us out of darkness into light, but you have exhorted us to put on light.
And you have said, because you died for us and live for us now, that we are to live for others. And I pray that that would be the desire of our heart. I pray that we would be tired of the nearsightedness and the blindness that has marked us. That we would be righteously frustrated with our continued thought that if we just continue to indulge the flesh, that maybe we'll be happy. Maybe things will be better. But Lord God, I pray that you would help us to realize that you've called us to a higher, more difficult path. Let us live that way, I pray. Through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.